This, this is John Halsman, and welcome to the weekly Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new era that we find ourselves in. And I thought we'd start a series um, that really plays to the strengths of realism. And one of the strengths of realism is that you have the ability to see the world through other people's eyes. And so I thought we'd take a look at how all the great powers, rightly or wrongly, view the world. Because only by seeing how they view the world and then looking at the admixture between them all will we come up with an idea of where the world is heading. And this goes back to really the modern theoretical basis of realism to guys like Hans Morgenthau, who really combine this grand global structural geopolitical reality that we focus on a lot on the podcast with the historical psychological view of specific leaders and how their character and indeed Freudian neuroses play out along with this grand structural historical reality. And it's that fusion of the individual, the historical, and the grand structure of international relations that I think really gives realism. And frankly, my political risk firm at Zip, because this plays to our strengths too. And so I thought we'd have a look at all the great powers, starting with China and moving on to the other superpower, the United States, and then going down at least to the great power level and probably including the developing world as well because they have a different view. So we'll look at the United States and China, and then at the great power level, Japan, India, the UK, Anglosphere, um, Russia, and the EU, and then down to the developing world, the emerging markets of the world, um, which are very interesting indeed. And we've talked a lot about here, but I think deserve uh, their own podcast. So we're going to have a look at if you were sitting today in the Forbidden City having a cup of tea in Beijing and you were surrounding the leadership of Xi Jinping or were a member of that leadership, how would you look at the world? And again, I think we have to start with the big picture and then drill down. At the global geostrategic level, um, and again, wars change things. The effects of the Russian invasion of Ukraine have been dramatic. Before the war, the great power constellation that was just emerging in our new era had the U.S. and China as the competing superpowers. So the top end of the new era is the U.S. and China, and to that extent, the world seems bipolar with two great powers, but beneath these great powers, uh, again, we don't live in a grand green novel. It's not that the two powers determine what happens to every poor, lonely, alcoholic Englishman throughout their former empire, as is true of every good grand green novel. And as most of you know, I think he's the greatest writer of the 20th century. But beneath these two superpowers, unlike the first Cold War, in the second Cold War, the great powers have an awful lot of room to run with a football. These are great powers, India, Japan, the EU, Russia, and the UK, Anglosphere. Clustered just beneath the two superpowers, they have a lot of room for independent strategic decision-making of their own. They can either side with one of the two superpowers or neutrally go their own way. At the beginning, before the Ukraine war, the Anglosphere, India, and Japan um, seemed firmly allied with the U.S., even as Russia veered between neutrality and a pro-Chinese position, not wanting to be fully in the pocket of the Chinese, but drifting in their direction, while the EU oscillated between neutrality, particularly the Germans under Merkel, were neutral in a pro-American stance. And the reason the Germans were neutral is their economy is tied to working with some of the other great powers. Basic German economy was cheap Russian gas inputs, high-end technology price uh, goods like cars, petrochemicals, engineering, um, leading to selling these things via trade. No one is a greater trader than the Germans to China. 
And so their economic model involving Russia and China pushed them toward neutrality during the miracle era. So you have on one side the U.S. with allies, the Anglosphere, India, and Japan. On the other side, you have China alone, but with Russia drifting toward China, but every once in a while kicking up its hind legs, not wanting to be Robin to China's Batman. And so veering between neutrality and a pro-Chinese position, while the EU oscillates between its traditional pro-American Atlantic position and neutrality, largely out of the black hole that was German foreign policy making. And so that's kind of how the world worked before the, the war. But as Bismarck has said, you'd, when you draw the sword, you roll the dice, and suddenly we have a very different world after the coming of war to Ukraine. The war has dramatically changed this emerging constellation. Now the EU has realigned with the U.S. It's moved from its quasi-neutral position to a much more strong tie with the U.S., even as Russia has been forced to throw in its lot with China. It has nowhere else to go. So Russia is selling oil, natural gas, energy products instead of to Europe, to India and China at a cut rate. And Russia is now firmly wearing the ugly tights of Robin compared to China being the Dark Knight, being Batman. On the other hand, India has drifted to a more neutral position. While India still sides with the United States in the vital Indo-Pacific, in the rest of the world, as we see over things like um, the Ukraine war, India is much more neutral. And it's gone back to its natural role as ahead of, as it was called in the first Cold War, the non-aligned movement. And this goes back to Jawaharlal Nehru, the beginning of the Indian government, that they want to be seen as a leader of this neutral or third force. And so this now leaves the, the cards have been shuffled, uh, the, the dice have been thrown, as Bismarck would put it. And this leaves the U.S. with the Anglosphere and Japan and the EU as allies. China has Russia in its camp. And India is precariously perched in the middle, veering from a pro-American pro position in the Indo-Pacific to neutrality more largely. And that's where they are. Obviously, unless one of the two superpowers acquires a decisive edge on its own, which hasn't happened, and is hard to have happen, that only happens over time, so we'll have warning of that analytically, the one that has the greatest number of allies tends to do the best. And at the moment, that would seem to give the edge to the United States, if not definitively as of yet. And this is how China, if we were having our tea in the Forbidden City, the red walls of the Chinese imperial city within Beijing, this is how we look at the world, that, that we're, we're catch, we've been catching up, we're still behind, perhaps we're peaking, but on the other hand, we're still in the superpower contest, we're still in the game. Um, and that leads us to the Chinese Communist Party's position over Taiwan, which is the Berlin of our new Cold War. The Chinese Communist Party has promised publicly to bring Taiwan under its control by 2049 at the latest, using force if necessary. Why 2049? Um, everything in China is about historical reasons and knowing your history. It's one of the many reasons I'm fascinated by the Chinese and love studying them. Uh, 2049 is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China when Mao won the Chinese Civil War, defeating Chiang Kai-shek, who was forced to flee to Taiwan. As paramount leader Xi Jinping has bluntly stated, quote, Taiwan's independent separatism is the most serious danger to national Chinese rejuvenation. For China, Taiwan is an integral part of the country, a renegade province since the Civil War of the late 40s, it must be retaken if the country is to be finally reunified. 
after the lunacy of Mao's cultural revolution, when Deng Xiaoping came to power, he said, look, we can't continue down this road. I mean, Deng's own family, his son was defenestrated and crippled. Um, he was the protege of Zhou Enlai, two of whose children themselves were tortured and murdered by the Red Guards in 1966 during the Cultural Revolution. So he had firsthand personal tragic knowledge of how off the rails China had gotten economically, morally, and personally under Mao. He said, we can't go on. And so being the genius that Deng was, he went back to two organic Chinese principles to serve as the new basis of power, the new mandate for heaven um, for the Chinese Communist Party. They were capitalism and nationalism, two very old Chinese forces. And in terms of nationalism, the capitalism is obvious, and this has been a great success, starting under the reforms that Deng began in December 1978. But the nationalism is less commented on, but is a potent force of pride and gives the Chinese Communist Party real legitimacy with their people. When one might not think it has it, it does, because it's brung home the bacon over capitalism and nationalism. Over nationalism, it was reuniting China, and this meant uh, Xinjiang province, which is the Uyghur province, the Muslim-dominated province in western China, Tibet, Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan. The Chinese communists were very specific about what reunification would look like. Well, Xinjiang province, Tibet, Macau, and Hong Kong have now all been brought to heel. Check, 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 check. But Taiwan remains the last. The jewel in the crown, the last piece of the puzzle for China to say it is now reunified and has seen off the 19th century of Western humiliations over the opium wars when China became, rather than the greatest power in the world, as it had so often been, a mendicant of the West. And the last piece in this puzzle emotionally is Taiwan. And that would mean the Communist Party has brought home the bacon economically and in terms of nationalism. It must be retaken. The CIA assesses that President Xi Jinping has ordered the Chinese military to be in a position to take Taiwan by force by 2027 at the latest. And that, that jibes with what my political risk firm and a, a number of other people think. That's certainly what we think. And so the period of maximum danger over this Cold War isn't like the first Cold War, some long drawn out down the road conclusion. The window of opportunity is now that the danger and the risk from the Chinese comes in the immediate term. It's the, it's the short to medium term. In the longer run, it gets harder for the Chinese to take Taiwan because the quadrilateral initiative begun by Shinzo Abe of Japan becomes uh, paramount. The United States, Australia, India, and Japan who are building this anti-Chinese, anti-adventuristic, uh, anti-Chinese alliance. They begin to work more and more together. CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the free trade deal that Japan uh, made a centerpiece of what they're doing in the Pacific Rim. This begins to work, and so the people of the region have real alternatives in terms of what to do, um, certainly economically, but then also in terms of this mini-NATO that is the Quad. And so before this thing really embeds and works, the Chinese have to, if they're going to go, they have to go in the immediate run. And so the window of risk is now. And the Chinese know this as well. If we were having tea this morning in the Forbidden City, we'd be saying the same, that if we're going to do this, it's the medium run that's, that means we have to do it. Later on, it may indeed get harder for us to do it. 
Um, so part of the centrality of Taiwan to the Sino-American superpower competition lies in geopolitics. And we've talked briefly about this before. The Chinese Navy and its trading potential are strategically hemmed in. China, along with Germany, are two of the greatest trading nations in the world. And yet they can easily be hemmed in if you have a look at a map. And please do while we talk. Geostrategy only makes sense if you involve the geography, and too often we don't. Uh, China's hemmed in by the first island chain. The first set of islands just off the Chinese coast, all of whom are a series of pro-American offshore allies. And who do we mean? Have a look at your map. Taiwan, Japan, the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, and then south to the Strait of Malacca and the Nicobar Islands and India. If you look at this area, these are all pro-American, tilting pro-American countries, and the American Navy can quickly seal off China from its trading partners in the rest of the world. And this is not how a superpower operates. If it can't control its own near abroad, it's not a superpower to speak of. And so the United States has its foot on the throat of the Chinese windpipe in terms of trade. And the only way for Beijing to break out of this straitjacket is to go south toward the Strait of Malacca, overland, which is what Xi's Belt and Road Initiative is designed to do, the old spice route, the old Marco, Marco Polo trading route, going overland to Eurasia or to go north toward Taiwan. You either go south, overland, or north. Those are your only options as we're sitting having tea this morning in the Forbidden City. Well, let's have a look at what these options would actually look like. How, how would this work? Going south is problematic as there are simply too many other navies, China, would have to fight off. You'd have to fight the U.S., Japanese, Indonesian, Filipino, Australian, and Indian navies. There's simply too many of them for you to do that. Going overland through the Belt and Road Initiative is proving more difficult than people thought. As the, and this was Xi's brainchild, that there was this new geostrategic route to avoid the north-south choice. Um, but this hasn't worked very well because the countries that China has given these huge infrastructure loans to in terms for making them satraps, going back to how imperial China used to work, these countries are poor long-term economic bets. They're defaulting on their loans, and China has mafia-style terms for non-payment. It doesn't, as the United States does with the IMF or the World Bank, roll its eyes, complain about foreigners, and then give them more money. Instead, it takes things. Uh, China seized the port of Hambantota in Sri Lanka, which Sri Lanka couldn't pay it, and as the British imperial forces did to them, uh, again, the numbers matter. They're using the British model. They say, okay, we'll take Hambantota for 99 years. Just as the British said, the treaty ports in China were good for 99 years. And so they go ahead and do that. Or they just recently took airports in Uganda when they couldn't pay. And so this gets around to the other countries that, hey, if we don't make our payments... We aren't, we aren't finger-wagged at. They start taking our infrastructure. For 99 years, we become an economic colony overtly of China, and they don't want that. And the Chinese, frankly, don't want to collect on this. They want these people to pay back their loans, but be part of the Chinese universe. So this isn't working nearly as well as it seemed on paper or as horrified article after horrified article made it out to be. There's a reason people don't give these countries... Um, in Eurasia, long-term economic bets and say they're going to work because they're terrible credit, credit risks. Back to my day job, and anybody would have known this, but the Chinese organically adopted this old imperial-style model 
of using trade to make economic satraps of these countries, but it hasn't worked very well. So the only option, if there are too many navies to the south and too many credit risks across Eurasia, the only option left is to go north. And this makes by far the most sense as we're having our tea this morning, as only the navies of the U.S. and possibly Japan stand between Beijing and the open blue water of the Pacific. If you can take control of Taiwan, the first island chain doesn't hem you in. You get your navy out into the blue waters of the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And because you dominate already the trading patterns of the Indo-Pacific, you come to dominate the Indo-Pacific, which is the most important region of the world in terms of future economic growth. And you can lay claim if you do this, if you're China, and view the world through China's eyes, to over time you're going to dominate the world because you're in charge of the part of the world growing at by far the greatest rate. As such, and this is the reasoning behind why Taiwan is the new Berlin, absolutely central, the strategic linchpin of the new Cold War between the U.S., and China. China, or Taiwan on its own, though, matters as well. Although it's small in geography, the country is not lacking in economic prowess. Uh, the shortages of microchips during the pandemic only boosted the profit of the island's $115 billion semiconductor industry, leading to Taiwan's GDP crossing the $800 billion mark, with estimates that it'll reach $850 billion by the end of 2022. We don't have that economic data yet, but that's a safe bet that presently the Taiwanese economy stands at about $850 billion. This makes it the 21st richest country or entity by GDP in the world, which means it matters. It's, it's a significant economy. Uh, the growth rate was 6.6% in 2021, so it's booming largely due to an increase in chip prices and its economy expanded by a comfortable 3.9% of GDP in 2022. So this is a prosperous, ever-growing, industrious, serious economic power that matters a lot on its own for that reasoning as well and has to be factored into what's going on down the road. Um, however, another factor in your favor if you're in China watching is Taiwan has had historically low investment in defense. It's been Yet another free rider. Think Europe. Uh, Taiwan has behaved like the lotus-eating Europeans. It's had a low investment in defense. With total expenditure, it's still only, despite all the threats coming from Beijing, total Taiwanese defense expenditure was only 2.2% of GDP in 2018, about $10.7 billion. Uh, defense spending has been consistently low over the last two decades. Between 2004 and 2019, Average military expenditure was even lower, just under 2% at 1.98%. Uh, and so while the Taiwanese spent $10.7 billion on their defense, China has increased its military spending to $229 billion. So $11 billion versus $229 billion. So China, Taiwan on its own can't stop China doing anything. The only thing keeping the Chinese at bay is the American Navy and Japanese basing in Okinawa where the American Navy can use to quickly try to repel some sort of invasion. And maybe the Japanese now under Kishida, the protege of Shinzo Abe, um, actually joining the United States and coming to the defense of Taiwan, which I think they would do. But it's just those two navies and a fastly waking up Taiwan, but from an incredibly low base that really isn't going to play. In, in terms of what they have if the Chinese decide to go. Um, 
And so that's, that's where we are. And then, of course, there's the Taiwanese Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, which contributes around 50% of advanced global chip production in the world. This is the final prize. So Taiwan matters geostrategically for the reasons we've said. It matters economically to be taken over. And then there are the chips. TSMC, this one company, contributes 50% of advanced global chip production in the world. So every smartphone, every bit of high tech you have, 50% of the chips to make that thing work come from this one company in this one endangered island. Obviously, whether this island tilts toward America or China plays a huge role in who wins the technology contest, which is a huge subset of who wins the Sino-American Cold War. Um, TSMC has begun to hedge their constructing chip plants and licensed production in the United States and Japan as they still tilt toward the United States. But this is a beautiful prize for China to try to take. And, that, and that's going on. But let's remember the geostrategic pressures are daunting on Taiwan. The island is only 100 miles from the Chinese mainland. It's 5,000 miles from Hawaii. Again, 100 miles from China, 5,000 miles from Hawaii. So American resupply in any sort of war game. We're playing a war game on Taiwan, excitingly enough, in Washington for high-level policymakers under the auspices of our, our allies and uh, co-workers, the John Quincy Adams Society, who have been a great friend to our firm and who we love working with as staunch realists. And the John Quincy Adams Society is playing a war game around Taiwan with high-level American decision makers that I'm uh, creating in June, and I will be very excited to report back to you on that. But the basic starting point is that, that, that Taiwan's 100 miles away from China and 5,000 miles away from Hawaii. So resupply for the Americans is key. Um, and, and that's where we are. The Chinese have a standing army of 2 million soldiers, nearly 12 times the size of Taiwan's armed forces. And so that's actually where we are at the moment. So if you're China and if we're having our tea and finishing it, we say, the time to do this is now, in the short to medium term, before these other forces coalesce against us. We are in danger of being a peaking power. We may get old because of our demography before we get rich. Under Xi's really blundering foreign policy, you've united the rest of the Indo-Pacific against you. You've scared the horses, bullying the Indians in the Himalaya bullying the Australians over the origins of COVID, bullying the Japanese in the East China Sea, bullying everybody else in the region in the South China Sea, oppressing the Uyghurs, stamping down on the kids in the democracy movement in Hong Kong. Everybody is alerted to the danger and is coalescing against you as great powers do, but you have these innate advantages and to complete the task, the temptation must be, must be overwhelming that by 2027, you're ready to go in Taiwan, knowing your window of opportunity to actually take the island is vanishingly small. So the period of maximum political risk is this decade, is by the end of this decade. If the West and the United States and its allies in the Indo-Pacific can see off the Chinese threat to Taiwan until, say, 2030 or so, then only good things happen in the region. There's a huge upside to this most fertile region going into the future, where most of the future economic growth of the world be will be located. But at present, all the political risk is there as well. And that's seeing the world from China's eyes. 
Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this first one, The World from China's Eyes. Next week, we'll do The World from America's Eyes, looking at how things are beginning with the uh, global state of play that we talked about and then drilling down on how America, under the Biden administration, looks at the rest of the world. I've enjoyed our tea this morning in the Forbidden City, and then we'll go down to the great power level and continue because these people have an awful lot of room to run with a football as well, and we'll look at how they see the world. So we have a complete integrated picture, a realist picture of how all these different entities view our one world, but they look at it very, very differently. And it's only these interactions based on these different viewpoints. And if you can work that out, you can do political risk. So I'm taking you down in the weeds with me. A number of you have asked, and I just want to say briefly, the book is proceeding great guns. We just signed our contract, I'm delighted to say, with White Fox Publishers, which is a wonderful publishing outlet, very prestigious, that are going to make beautiful books for us, going to give us 50,000 print copies. We're very, very excited about this. Um, and we'll begin to talk about pre-ordering the book in the early autumn of the year. We're very excited to push this forward. I just finished my chapter on Nixon to China, actually, and I'm moving on to Ronald Reagan, the final main chapter, then the conclusion, and then I am done. And then we go to copy editing. But we have signed the contract with White Fox Publishers in London. We love working with John Bond and his crew, and we'll be talking more and more about the book as we get nearer to the exciting publication date. And please do buy 10 copies each. <laughs> but I think it's the, I, this is my 15th book, and I think this is my revolver. I think this and to dare more boldly are the absolute, a la the Beatles, the apex of what I can do. I'm delighted to say that. I, I don't think I can do any better. Um, I certainly can do worse, but I really think that these two books together, and particularly The Last Best Hope, the new one, is Revolver. It is as close to a masterpiece as I can come, which really looks at a history of American realism and why this can unite the Republican Party for the next 40 years moving ahead. Because if we can change the Republican Party, we change America. And if we change America, we can change the world. So please do keep that in mind as we move ahead. Um, I haven't shaven in days because I've been writing, so I'm going to do that this morning. And for those of you who have not yet subscribed, please do so. Um, so many of you have joined our community, and we love that it's getting bigger and bigger. And for those of you who have subscribed, to give you this unique insight into the world from the various countries' eyes and all the other things that we do, we're asking for only $70 a year, the price of one espresso a month, which I'm going to go make now. For one espresso a month, $70 a year, we will keep them coming. Take care, everybody. And again, The Last Best Hope is coming along great. Thanks to White Fox. I think we have a wonderful publishing partner. And on we go.